1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 onwards. We asked you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks and that you are a God who instructs. We are not left alone in our own devices to come up ways to please you, but you've actually told us the ways in which we can please you. And so we ask, Father, that you'd bless us this morning Help us to receive this word, to embrace it in all the myriad ways that it speaks to us. We ask, Father, that you will help us to understand this and to live it out. Help us, Father, to remember that we do this because we are your people, saved by the blood of your Son, united to him and called to live for him. We thank you for the grace that is so within this passage that compels us and empowers us to live for you. So, Father, bless this time together as Elder Dan prayed before. Help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For your glory and our joy together, we pray these things. Amen. It's the middle of November. Jacarandas are blooming. And that means, of course, that it is exam time everywhere for students. So let me just say one thing to all the students here. Most of you do not know what a true exam is like. You have it easy. Let me tell you what a real exam is like. None of these multi-choice questions, none of these short response exams. I'm talking full essay, six to eight pages per question, four questions per exam, three hours long, weighted, 80%. On one occasion, 100%. The single mercy shown to me by my lecturers were that these were open book exams. Behold, I was a law student. Now, uh, all joking aside, uh, let me tell you what would normally happen in these crazy long exams. Uh, I'd allot my time around 45 minutes per question and always, every single time, what would happen is I'd get down to the last final five minutes 
and then just start bullet pointing everything I need to say after that. Forget properly formed sentences, just stream of thoughts related to the question, get out as much as I could, and then leave it to the marker to work out what to do with it. <laughs> now, as we get to the end here in 1 Thessalonians, it gave me that feeling of deja vu. A spray of sentences right at the end, almost like a stream of thoughts, with Paul getting out as much as he could, leaving it to the Thessalonians to work out, uh, what to do with it all. You kind of get the feeling that he, he turned the page and went, oh, I've only got half a, half a page left. Uh, let me just <laughs> jot down some notes. Now, as random as it looks, as we've heard it read out before, there is an overarching point to it all, a point that brings to a close the main point of the entire book. See, Paul wrote this letter to encourage this young church. He had heard that, they, he, remember, he planted it, but he had to rush off quickly. Right? And wanting to know how they were going, he sent Timothy, and he had heard from Timothy that they were going well. And so he wanted to write to them, he, to rejoice that they were going well, to tell them to keep going. At the gospel race, they started really well. They had the help of Paul and others, and now they needed to press on with the same gospel they first heard. And so here at the end... Uh, Paul tells them to stand firm until Jesus returns. And standing firm until Jesus returns needs three things. It needs unity. It needs effort. And it needs the grace of God. Uh, standing firm until the end, until the return of Jesus, needs unity, effort, and the grace of God. Now, before we get into the text, uh, I do want to flag something here for anyone here who is with us who is not a Christian or is not sure that they're a Christian. First, I want to say that I'm really glad that you're here with us today. Uh, I'm, I know that some of you have actually been with us for quite a while. So here's what I want to tell you today. Put in the fruit after you switch on. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, years ago, there was an English woman uh, who was giving a very funny talk on Malaysian English. She had married a Malaysian uh, man and was moving to Malaysia. And she shared the story of this poor English student who came to Malaysia on exchange and was working part-time in a fruit smoothie shop. Now, her boss told her to make a fruit smoothie, and he told her, put in the fruit after you switch on. <laughs> Can you see where I'm going with this? She switched the machine on, and then she tried to put the fruit in, and it made a big mess. See, the language barrier uh, in, for the English girl, for, for the, well, there was a language barrier there for the English girl. What she heard was that word order differently. See, it would have been a lot more helpful if he had said, you put in the fruit, and then after, you switch it on. Right? What he said was clear enough for those who understood it, but to an outsider, it was all mixed up. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to get the order right. Paul is giving a bunch of instructions here at the end of this letter, but he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking, he's not speaking to non-Christians to tell them how to be saved. And he's not speaking to non-Christians to tell them what you need to do in order to be a Christian. He's talking to people who have already trusted Jesus with the whole of their lives. And now he's telling them what, a being, what being a Christian continues to look like. So today's sermon is primarily a conversation to believers. So if you're not a believer here, I, I do still want you to listen. Uh, don't switch off. 
Because what you're going to hear is what the Christian community should look like. And I hope as you hear it, that you'll be impressed. I hope you'll see that it's not just a dream or a fairy tale, but can and is a reality. And I hope you'll find yourself in a place where you will want to join that community as well. So at the, at the end of it, at the end of today, if you think, yeah, this is a community I think I would like to join, then please have a chat with the friend who brought you here today to the service, or please definitely come up and, and say hello and, and um, have a chat with me about it afterwards as well. For now, though, let's see how Paul tells this young church to stand firm. First, he wants to, them to stand firm together, and in order to do that, they'll need unity. But he starts this passage somewhere a little bit awkward for me. Uh, he starts with telling them about my job as a pastor and your relationship with me. And that always feels a little bit awkward to do this. Uh, we have to speak about it, though, because it's not because it's on my to-do list or because it's a, a hobby horse of mine, but because it happens to be in the passage that we're looking at. So have a look at me again at verse 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So here, what does Paul want the church to do? Verse 13, he spells it out. He wants them to esteem their pastors and their elders very highly in love, to honor and appreciate them, not just with lip service, but in actual love. This is a bit of an awkward question for me to ask, but let me ask it. Do you appreciate your pastors and elders? And if you do, how do you show it? I know some people who don't like to give encouragement to their pastors because they are afraid that it will puff up their pride. So they hold back any specific encouragement. I heard some, I heard uh, from one person that they think a pastor doesn't need encouragement. God is enough for them. Let me just say no to both. Pastors need encouragement just as much as everyone else needs encouragement. Appreciation is the emotional fuel of pastoral perseverance. Why should you appreciate your pastor? Not just simply because of their position, but have a look at verse 12. It's because of their work. They labor among you. They are over you in the Lord and they admonish you. Three things here. I don't mean this to sound like a pity party, but the work of pastoral ministry is labor. It's hard work. Right? You know of some jobs where the work is just never finished and it just plays in your mind and you can actually bring it home and you know, it invades personal time. Pastoral ministry is like that. There is always more to do. There's always more preaching and teaching of God's word faithfully and clearly, which involves heaps of study and prayerful reflection. It involves counseling all sorts of issues and problems from marriage difficulties, personal strife, friendship breaks down, death and losing loved ones. It involves leading and guiding the church in directions we wouldn't normally want to go on our own. Let's stop with that old joke that says that pastors only really work one day a week. It's a quite a discouraging joke. God places pastors over us 
in the Lord. Now, this isn't some comment to say that pastors are better than the rest of the church or have some higher status in God's eyes, but it's about the weighty responsibility of those who have been delegated, the responsibility of leading and feeding God's sheep, and the weighty burden of a higher judgment from God for this work. And Paul says that it involves the particularly hard work of admonishing people, of saying the hard words when necessary. And that takes a lot of wisdom and discernment to know when to speak up and when to shut up and listen, and then to deal with the fallout of that. Saying hard things is one thing, but when you do, it inevitably changes your relationship with that person. My guess is, and I think it's a good guess, is that most of us would prefer that people like us rather than despise us or be afraid of us. No one wants that in their relationships. And it's the same for me, yet the responsibility I have as a pastor is to sometimes sit you down and say, hey, you're in the wrong, you're sinning, and you need to repent. So for these reasons and and more, We should esteem our pastors and elders with appropriate and genuine love. Now, after telling them to esteem their pastors, Paul then tells them to be at peace among yourselves, which is a slightly odd thing to say and feels a little bit random. But when you think about it, it actually kind of makes sense. See, after, as your pastors are laboring over you and you show them affection, that will build peace between all of us here in, in church. The peace of friendship, the peace that kills hostility, the, the same peace that we have between, in the gospel between us and God, that is the peace that we have with each other. See, if the church is going to stand firm, they need to be united. Their pastors and elders will be doing the hard work of ministering to them so that everyone can love and serve each other and persevere in the faith. In return, love and appreciation is shown to them to fuel them on in their work. And all of that will bring unity and peace in the church. So have a think. Think about those who have led you and taught you the Bible and helped you grow as a Christian. You've got that person in your mind? You've got those people in your mind? Thank God for them. Why not drop them a message of appreciation, a thank you note? That will greatly encourage them and help them persevere in authentic, genuine gospel ministry. One of my most cherished gifts was from Sunday Wife Retreat last year. Uh, the YFers uh, wrote on little cards this big. I forgot to bring them. I was meant to bring them in. Uh, they wrote these on these little cards. Every wife at the retreat wrote on these little cards words of encouragement to me. And that was, I cannot tell you how much that encouraged me and has fueled me on at times. It sits on my desk. It is not tucked away. It gathers no dust because I read them regularly for encouragement. So whether it's here at Esley Church or if you're a student going back home, uh, think of the ways that you could show appreciation and esteem to the pastors and leaders who have ministered to you. And one of the best ways to encourage them is to also live out a harmonious, peaceful life in the church. Not a a surface-level harmony, but a genuinely gospel-centered and gospel-grounded harmony, right? where strife and issues and sin are confessed and dealt with among each other, where reconciliation is not just a principle spoken of, but is a culture, 
where real, deep peace is found between believers here at church. See, friends, would you like to be a part of a church like that? Where the pastors and leaders genuinely care for you, they preach God's word clearly and faithfully to you, and out of profound love, admonish you where, you, where needed? Where everyone in church is living with repentance and grace and forgiveness toward each other, in peace together, would that be a church that you would want to be a part of? Well, you can if you are willing to work at it together. See, SLE Church, we've got a reputation. We're known as the teaching church, the church which is deep in the word. But I, I want to grow a culture here. Whatever the reputation we have out there, I want to grow a culture in here where we have a place of real love, a place of encouragement, freely and genuinely given to each other. Church life together can be wonderful, but it does require effort on our part, and that's where Paul goes to next. See, life together is not just all about encouragement. If we need to stand firm together, then it's going to take work in a number of areas. Paul begins in verse 14, addressing three groups of people. Read with me again verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So you see three groups of people being spoken about here. First is the idle, which is, might be a reference back to chapter 4 uh, of those who needed to work with their hands, uh, those who were not very busy with work but were busy bodies, right? Getting their noses into everyone else's business. However, the word idle also can carry a sense of disorderliness or being undisciplined. Uh, I think of those who just like to joke around all the time. Now, I... I like to laugh and I like to joke and apparently my personality is that I will find any opportunity to have a laugh with people. But the idol here are those who joke around all the time, who don't really take the second coming of Jesus seriously, who simply live in the moment. With this group, Paul wants them to be admonished. Right, so sometimes we extend the hand of fellowship to people, and other times we extend the foot of fellowship to the bum. Right? Sometimes the most loving thing to do is give someone a gentle kick up the backside. Not because we want to be harsh, and we don't do it out of anger or frustration, but out of love, so that they can start taking their Christian lives seriously. Who here is idle, not just in work, but in not taking the second coming of Jesus seriously. Prepare to be admonished. With this second group, we have the faint-hearted, the low in spirit, discouraged or grieving. We met the grieving last week, those who were grieving the loss of their loved ones in, chapter, in this first half of chapter 5. Uh, sorry, the sec- last bit of chapter 4. Uh, we, and, and not just those grieving, the faint-hearted are also those who are just generally not going well spiritually. They are in danger of walking away. This group needs to be encouraged, to be given courage. They are stumbling and they need help back on their feet to, to walk with them in their time of struggle. 
uh, to keep pointing them to the grace and the hope that we have in Jesus. And the hope of this encouragement is that they will start walking with Jesus again with confidence. Are you faint-hearted? Are you feeling low spiritually? Please, let us encourage you. The third group are the weak, which is, which is actually quite a general word. It could mean those who are physically ill, right? those who are dealing with physical sickness and frailty. It could also refer to those who have a weak conscience, right? those who are less mature in their faith and discernment. Or it could be those who are less honoured in our society and our culture, uh, those that many in our world consider to be lower class or those that our world looks down upon. This group needs to be given help. Again, a, a general catch-all term, the word help, uh, means that we go out of our way to sacrificially love these people, to, to think of ways that we might lend a hand and to give them support and fellowship when others abandon them. Do you consider yourself to be weak? Help us to help you. Let us give you that help that you need. The key to all of this is at the end of verse 14, patience. Right? Church life together is a long-haul project, especially in our world of instant gratification Patience is a Christian virtue that we probably need to work really hard to cultivate a lot more. Patience takes time. How many of you are allergic to patience? Right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that patience is an act of love. Love is patient and kind. Patience means to be long-suffering, to, to bear with people, not just through the weeks and the months, but through the years and the decades. And to show patience requires that we plant deep roots in our church. So if you're a student here and you're heading back, you'll need to do this. Find yourself a church that preaches the word clearly and faithfully, where authentic, genuine Christians fellowship together, where genuine gospel ministry takes place, and plant yourself there for the long haul. I know that some people consider themselves to be nomadic. And in our world, that is much easier than ever. Right? It's so easy to just move around from city to city, place to place, especially when you are young and carefree and have no big major responsibilities to tie you down. But let me challenge that. The life the gospel calls you to is a life of patient endurance with fellow believers. That's a life of planting your roots deep in one place. A life of being on the move doesn't require patience with people. So don't follow work. Don't let the job opportunities lead your direction in life. Don't let work take you away from the church you are called to stand firm with. Here's a radical idea. Shape your working life around your church family, around your church commitments. That might be costly. It might be, mean saying no to the promotion because it requires further hours or no to the promotion because it means uh, distant work. 
but you are not called to a life of self-fulfillment or identity in your career, but to follow Jesus with others in church together. And parents, I'm going to say this here in the first service, less on the second. I'm going to talk to the parents here for a second. If this is true, then please do not encourage your adult children to head interstate or to overseas for work. Encourage them to remain planted in the church that is serving them and where they are serving. That'll mean sacrificing the boast that you have in your children that, of their work status, but it will mean receiving the kingdom rewards eternally for you and for them. Now, doing all this, uh, admonishing, encouraging, helping with all patience, doing all this breaks the cycle of evil. Have a look again at verse 15 with me. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. And again, feels like a little bit of a random uh, sentence thrown in here, but in context of church life together, it does make sense. If we're doing those things in verse 14, if we're admonishing the idle, if we're encouraging the faint-hearted, if we're helping the weak, and we're doing that patiently with each other, there will be no room for revenge. We know, we know how easy it is to repay evil with evil. From the simple thing of when you're driving down Coronation Drive and a typical Brisbane person just cuts in front of you, you know what it's like to just grip the wheel a little tighter and curse them under your breath. To that strained relationship you have with your brother or sister, to that strained relationship you have with your parents, to your boss who is just, mm, you know what it's like to think evil thoughts or bad thoughts about others, to repay an offence on someone, to wish them ill fortune or to give someone shade and freeze them out. Repaying evil for evil in, is the world that we kind of live in at the moment, right? How else can we explain cancel culture? People do or say dumb things, unwise things, and they get cancelled. I am so glad Twitter and Facebook did not exist when I was in high school and uni, because I said a lot of dumb things. Right? I cannot fathom having that like eternally there. You say dumb things today and you will lose your job. You will lose sponsors. If you're an athlete, you will lose your livelihood. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't call out bad behavior, but it sometimes, doesn't it sometimes feel that the punishment is worse than the crime? But in church life, it's different. We do not embrace cancel culture. We embrace a grace and mercy culture, a culture of doing good to each other, where Christians always pursue the good of the uh, Christian community and those beyond. Remember, it was Jesus himself who said to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek. God has showed us incredible mercy and grace when we rejected and rebelled against him. God so loved the world that rejected him that he sent his only son to die at the hands of that world. And we follow in the footsteps of that saviour. We pursue the good of those around us seeking their welfare. And especially so in church. 
A culture of grace and mercy, a culture that doesn't repay evil with evil, requires heaps of prayer. A prayer which doesn't just ask God for things, but is ultimately shaped, uh, ulti- but prayer that ultimately shapes and changes lives. A prayer described in verse 16 and 18. Have a look at me again. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here for the second time in this very short letter, Paul tells us clearly what is God's will for our lives. Right? The mystery, the mystery of working out God's will is found twice here in this letter. It's found in your personal holiness and your prayerfulness. First in verse 16, rejoice always. Joy, right? The foundational part of the Christian life, which includes being happy, but it's more than just that. Happiness. Happiness depends on our circumstances. Joy is ever-present. Think of it like the waves at the beach, right? Some days when you get down to the Sunshine Coast or the Gold Coast, you'll just see the, the waves kind of moving gently, washing up on the shore with this gentle and pleasant rhythm. And then on other days, it can be a raging torrent. And the idea of jumping into the water for a swim, a quick swim, is just out of the question. Happiness is like that dependent on circumstances. But joy is like the currents that flows constantly underwater. It's always there, no matter what is happening on the surface. Christians have the greatest reason to be joyful, don't we? We know. We know our eternal destiny is secure. We are united to Jesus by faith alone. We are secure in his love for eternity, forgiven and reconciled to God. Friends, there are no other reasons that could give you more joy. And with that, we can pray without ceasing, which I don't think means that we are constantly to be praying 24-7, but to have a mindset of always being ready to pray, where prayer is kind of a muscle reflex in any situation and circumstance then we are able to give thanks in all circumstances because no matter what life brings, even for those grieving the loss of loved ones, thankfulness can be there. It will be expressed in multiple and myriad of ways through all sorts of emotions, but thankfulness can always be there. Uh, By the grace, his grace, we are always able to be thankful and find things to be thankful for. Now, from there, Paul moves on to the next part, which I think I'm sure some of you have been patiently waiting to hear about. So let's read again from verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. All right, here we go. So... First instruction is do not quench the spirit. To do not quench is to put out, right? Kind of like if you've got a, a campfire and you pour water on it. That is to quench something. But what does it mean to quench the spirit? Answer is in verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Which leads to the next question of how do we define what a prophecy is so that we can know not to despise it. That in of itself is a tricky question. Partly because Paul doesn't define it here, he just says it. Uh, What may help us to understand what he means is that we need to step back and look at the context. And just very quickly, this is exactly what you should do whenever you have difficulty working out the specific meaning of a passage or a verse. You start by looking at the verse's immediate context 
and then you zoom out and you look at the chapter context, and you zoom out and you look at the book context, you might think about the author and if they've said something similar. So you zoom out further and you look at the Testament context and then zoom out even wider to look at the context of the entire Bible. So what do we learn about prophecy from context? From first in verse 21, it needs to be tested and weighed. Uh, weighed against the gospel and the Bible, right? This, is, this means that just because you have a prophecy, right, especially in the New Testament, just because you have a prophecy to share doesn't make you a big P prophet like in the Old Testament. Right? Each prophecy is to be weighed on its merits. Second, zooming out, we know from Paul's other writings that prophecy is something both men and women can do, and it builds up the church. Uh, it, it seems from those contexts to be something like taking God's word and applying it in a special and specific way to each other's lives, to have that spiritual gift of insight into applying God's word and speaking it to each other's lives. The main thing here in this passage is that Paul wants the church to be open to this idea, to hear God speak, to test the prophecies, and if it's good, hold fast to it, take the encouragement from God's word. But if it's not, to abstain from it, to discern that. Because it may not be from God, it may cause you it may be a word that causes you to walk away from the gospel or the Bible. A few weeks ago, I watched some TikToker claim a prophecy from God that God's word on a matter of a particular sin was over, that God was declaring a new age of love and, and acceptance. But her prophecy explicitly rejected God's word on a clear subject. And FYI, TikTok may not be the best place to get your theology. Abstain from that kind of evil. Reject it. Be open to God speaking, yes, but discern what is from God and what is not. Hold it up against the God, what God has already clearly said in his Bible and in the gospel. Be open and discerning. Now, all of this in point two is to say that all of this takes work and effort. Right, the Christian life is hard work. At the close of this letter, Paul wants to remind this church that they started well in the gospel. They were standing firm. So keep at it. Keep going. Keep the effort going. Now, to be clear, Paul is, what Paul is saying here in verse 14 and 22, he's not saying do all this and then you will be saved, nor does he say that you need to do this to earn your salvation, but like running, which you may have heard I'm deathly allergic to, uh, like running, it takes effort to keep going. An effort that we need to encourage each other in, to keep pushing each other in, to offer up words of encouragement, of exhortation, of admonition, of help, to tell each other, get to the boat, get to the boat. If you didn't get that, have a listen to last week's sermon. Now, Paul says all of this in order for them to stand firm. They will need this effort. So are we putting in effort as well? If you want to stand firm, you will need to do hard work. Now, how do you feel about that? When you hear this talk of effort that you need to put in, how does that make you feel? Does the thought of putting more effort into your Christian walk excite you or, oh, gosh, deflate you? I know how I respond. I hear all this and I get, 
I get a bit deflated. I don't want to undercut everything that has just been said, but we need to hear it. But I wonder if you're like me, and you hear all of that, and you kind of go, yeah, okay, I'll try. So we know it already. We know that we're probably not great at keeping it up. Are you like me? Well, you know that you belong to Jesus. I, I rarely doubt that. I, I don't doubt that I belong to Jesus. I don't doubt that I'm united with him and I'm saved and secure. My struggle is more that I just don't see change. I, I can't escape the feeling that my Christian life is this kind of saving face sham. So when I look at my life and I see persistent sin, so after 21 years of being a Christian and I still wrestle with the same sins, I sometimes despair that at the sins that I keep struggling with. For those who have visited my home, you'll know that my office is filled with books. Right? I'm trying to convince Steph to actually buy some more bookshelves. <laughs> My book pile is like now encroaching on the living room, on the office couch. But I don't read nearly enough of that. I just collect books. Helps me look smart. And I have this constant feeling that I haven't made much progress in my Christian walk. Will my desires ever match up with Jesus? Will my character ever look like him? Will I be doomed to constantly losing my cool with the kids? Or will I actually grow one day in patience? Have you ever felt like that yourself? And into that moment comes this whisper, very subtly. It's the voice of Satan. And he just simply says, you fraud. Into that moment comes these final words from Paul, these final marvellous, magnificent, and stunningly reassuring words. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul's final prayer here is a gospel vaccine in a sin-saturated viral world. He prays that God would sanctify them, the whole of them, their spirit, soul, and body. Every part of their being will be made holy and right before God when Jesus returns. And how will that happen? It's not dependent on our effort alone. Verse 24, the God who calls us is faithful and he will surely do it. God who calls us to faith and trust in Jesus, who calls us to the effort of verses 14 to 22, the God who called us in Christ will ensure that we are sanctified and blameless. 
He will make sure that our efforts will not go to waste. See, my effort isn't just assisted by God, as though he gives me a little nudge along the way, and my effort is not matched by that silly cliche that God helps those who help themselves. No. God is more gracious and more merciful and kind and amazing, and he guarantees that we will get to the end. Come back with me to last week and to that plane analogy again. Right? Remember, once you're on the plane, what do you need to do? What is your number one job when you get onto that plane? Your number one job is to trust the pilot. Right? You don't, you, you, so you sit down, you buckle up, and you patiently wait while he does his work. You don't jump into the cockpit and grab the steering wheel to help. Right? You don't open the side emergency door and try to hop out of the plane and, and push it along as well. Right? Your effort is an effort to trust that the pilot knows what he's doing. And so then you live as though the pilot and the plane will get to your, you to your destination. You follow the instructions, right? If you've got someone nervous sitting next to you, you might encourage them as a passenger. And you trust that the pilot will get you to your end point. Jesus is the pilot. He has called you to salvation. And he is faithful to his people. He will not let you go. He will not let you remain unchanged. He will grow you, even if you can't see it yourself. He will change you with your effort, and he will make you more and more into his image. He will ensure you stand blameless before God. He will surely do it. What a marvellous statement of reassurance at the end. Friends, if you know the end that Jesus has in store for us, that will powerfully shape your present. So here is another boost of encouragement to get to that end. He will make your sanctification secure, so now you have every freedom and motivation to put the effort in. The final four instructions wrap up this letter. Paul wants them to pray for him, to pray for his gospel ministry and work. He wants them to greet each other with a holy kiss, a sign of affection and unity together. He wants them to love each other and to be united together. And he puts them under oath to read this letter out. This, this is God's word to this church that they must hear it. And then he ends on this final note of grace, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Right? He closes that letter with this. He opened the letter with grace, and he finishes this letter with grace to them. Friends, that in a nutshell is the message of this book. Grace from start to finish. From the start of the Christian life, we are saved by grace. We are given grace to trust Jesus as we go along Grace will carry us through our efforts right to the end. Our effort is there, and grace empowers it all and fuels us across the finish line. So friends, let's do that together. Let's stand firm together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great and encouraging and wonderful little book, a book that many of us needed to hear. 
a book that compels us to keep trusting your son, Jesus. A book that reminds us that a lot of us in this church have started the Christian race well. Praise God for that. And we pray that we will receive this word to keep pushing on, to encouraging each other, to holding fast to Jesus in the gospel, that we might continue to go on in that gospel we first heard. Father, help us to not be idle. May your word and the loving word of each other rebuke us and exhort us to live and take the second coming of Jesus seriously. Father, help us encourage each other when we feel faint. Help us to look for ways to help each other when we are weak. Help us to do all of this with patience with each other. Help us to love and serve each other, to be united together as one, that we might encourage each other, glorify you, and grow our joy together. For we ask this all in Jesus' most mighty and beautiful name. Amen.